Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us a great guy who I had the pleasure of meeting in person about a month ago. Unlike a guy in the multifamily space, I have so many of those guys on. Oh my God, love them all. But this is different. This is a man who is doing phenomenal things in the cannabis lending space uh, with many, 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 many very, very happy investors and uh, great niche. Uh, so excited to speak to him. He happens to be the co-founding president of Polaris Capital Group. He is Rob Seacrest. Rob, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. You got it. And so, you know, Rob, before we get into the the uh, cannabis lending space, give me the Rob Seacrest background story Pre, even pre-real estate, and then how did you get your toe in the bathtub in real estate, and what's the progression? Sure, happy to do that. So I come from a family of entrepreneurs. I um, went to San Diego State, and uh, I knew that I would be doing my own business at some some point in the future. While I was at San Diego State, I did my first capital raise for um, uh, uh, nine restaurants uh, chain. And um, that just kind of gave me the experience of how to start thinking about things in a, in a more business sense way to do it. And then um, I eventually started my first company in, the, in my early 20s, an action sports company in San Diego. And um, I was able to get that to about 2.4 million in uh, gross revenue each year. And I sold that uh, in my uh, later 20s. And um, that was the uh, my Harvard Business School of uh, you know uh, of higher learning that that I could utilize real experiences on how to to do things and some of those things that were some of the most important lessons were were accounting and how to think about accounting uh, cash flows um, also how to think outside the box um, you know during that time I was being that age I you couldn't raise capital like you can raise t- today and especially being the the age I was. And uh, you have to really strategically think about how to um, raise money. And in that, uh, just a quick story, I actually realized that I already had capital investors. They just didn't, I wasn't thinking about it the right way. And I went to all my vendors that were my suppliers and I got them to increase the lines of credits and I got them to increase the purchase orders, which reduced the, the, the cost per product. And in, in all those negotiations, I raised all the capital I needed through lines of credit, and yet, I, and I got the company to be more profitable because I was able to re- reduce the uh, the cost basis of the units I was purchasing. So, um, from there, I um, realized it was so much work to do 2.4 million in revenue uh, for 10% uh, net, you know, profitability. Just wasn't worth the risk and all the management, all everything that was there. So, I, I realized I wanted to do bigger transactions. Um, and uh, get paid at the close in a shorter sales cycle. And so for me, I thought that that would be real estate. And so I went into doing financing international uh, uh, projects. And um, you know, I got up to about 100 million of transactions ready to be closed in December of 2007. And the economy started to, uh, to wobble. 
And as I was at the closing table, I had already um, uh, signed all the documents to close as the lender $100 million worth of deals on free and clear properties. Um, and I had a standby letter of credit from Singapore. And at the closing table, after everything was signed, the standby letter of credit said that we're rescinding our, line, our, our standby letter of credit. I'm like, you can't do that. We've already got signed documents. We'll sue you. They said, go for it. And I learned that sometimes, you know, people do things, and I've learned this before, but, you know, that's a business risk that they took. And they realized that, you know, that is something they're willing to fight that law, that lawsuit as opposed to putting, as opposed to trying to go through the, that what they saw coming as well. And around that same time, my best friend, um, Dan is my current, uh, uh part, business partner. Um, he said, hey, buddy, there is a, a, a disaster coming. I can see it coming. What would it take to get you to come back to Orange County? And I said, buddy, this, this call is all you need to do. I'll, I'll come up there. I got your back. And I came up and um, we went through the great financial crisis. And uh, after we got through that, we formed Polaris. And um, here we are today. There you are today. What uh, just a, a detail? This this restaurant chain nine nine. What kind of restaurant? And how much money did you raise when you're in college? Yeah, so look, in college, I was a busboy and a waiter and all those things to make ends meet. And my the manager of that restaurant was an extremely smart guy, and um, she decided to take the San Diego taqueria model, which really kind of only existed that style of street taco down in San Diego up to the Bay Area. And so that was the the concept. And, um, you know, he, uh, it was originally just one restaurant and then, and, but it eventually grew up to, to nine restaurants. Um, and that was the, the first thing that I kind of worked on uh, as raising capital. Prior to that, I had, you know, had my own, um, the software company when I was in the eighth grade, I had the youngest computer software company. Back, back in the day, uh, writing games and selling them uh, through magazines and sending them out on cassette tapes. And nobody ever knew how old we were until the local paper figured it out and uh, came and did an inter- a story on us. Wow, got it. I, I just have to ask, I'm, I've been in the Bay Area forever and I, I can't help myself, but what was the name of the chain of the name was The name was Rockin' Taco. And this was in the late, uh, early 90s. And there was not, there was Stanford, um, Santa Cruz. So there was, there was nine locations. Rockin' Taco was the name. Got it. Okay. And then I want to, I want to go to this experience where you had a hundred million dollars on the line. Um, tell me what what exactly was that business? And you say you, you were a lender. Tell me what you yeah. what, what what were you doing exactly? Yeah. So um, my company was the lender uh, operating as the lender. I had aggregated the investors for the money, but in addition, it, it was three separate uh, development projects um, in one in Mexico and two in Costa Rica. And they were all owned free and clear. And this was the build out of uh, fully approved uh, entitled resorts uh, or, or major developments. And um, in doing that transaction, not only was it free and clear, not only was the money going to be advanced, uh, or they had to build it and then they were, we would reimburse them. But I also had a standby letter of credit. So I had all the pieces there for the model of how to lend on that. I'd raised all the capital, but that standby letter of credit was part of how we raised the capital. And when they backed out, we couldn't go forward with the deal. Um, that was that was a lot of uh, sleepless nights of worrying about lawsuits from the borrowers because I had exposure that was caused by 
the other party backing out. They could have easily uh, sued me, but I learned to do the right thing, stay in communication with them, and um, you know, work through that. And um, ultimately, the as we started to see the economy take, get get worse and worse and worse, they all realized that this was probably the best thing that could have possibly happened. To rather than to start a development project in the middle of a great financial crisis, regardless of if it was free and clear. So um, that ultimately, uh, did, nobody nobody did anything. So it worked out. Okay. All right. Thanks for your patience. Um, and then, so when you went back to OC uh, with Dan, was that in 08, uh, part A, the question, and then B, uh, what did you do? Is, it, is that when you started Polaris or what were you doing? No. So that was in uh, 08, in January of 08, I came, I came back to uh, Orange County. The great financial crisis hadn't uh, happened yet, but we were really starting to see lots and lots of cracks um, through the system. And um, ultimately, you know, Dan's company was uh, a lender and we had to ultimately foreclose on hundreds of properties. Um, of those hundreds of properties, um, about 120 of those reverted back to us. I was My job was to reposition all 120 of those assets. And so when you go through something like that and you have to work through all those broken projects that the borrowers just walked away from, it's an enormous challenge for many, many, many directions. And it takes a, a huge amount of bandwidth. And so what I like to share is that when you go through uh, situations like that, the lessons and things that you learn are so important to the future of a business. And you look for things of what could we, have, is there anything that we could have done to mitigate any more risk uh, for our investors more than what, what we did if the borrower just walks away? And we did find a few things that we could tighten up. We realized, for example, that when borrowers submit budgets and there's line items, that borrowers will sometimes, uh, for the line item, there's a labor portion and then there's a a, a uh, cost uh, for the item as well for that. Let's just say it was plumbing. There's the cost for the pipes and then there's the cost for the labor. What we what we ultimately learned is that when projects get distressed, um, borrowers will inflate their labor cost and they will reduce the materials cost. Now, that may not be that massive, but when you're doing a a single family residence and it's on the fit and finishes for the house, those lesser fit and finishes could have a significant impact on the look and feel of the final value of that house. And so what we realized uh, is that that's one area that we realized we could tighten up. And so we would, um, in the future, we had actually separated those line items for labor and materials to make sure that that didn't uh, happen. So there, there were some things like that. I'm just giving one example. Were they, what, what percentage of that portfolio were houses or were any of them houses? That was primarily, it was a mainly uh, residential fix and flip, uh, ground up construction houses primarily. There was a few commercial uh, transactions, but that's 90% residential. In Were they in Orange County or LA or where were they? Uh, throughout California. Okay, got it. All right. Um, and so what would you say, and maybe, maybe you already did, but I guess I'll ask anyway, what would you say the key lessons from that experience were? So um, there's a, a lot of key lessons. Um, there's, there's kind of two sides to it. One is, is that as a as a lender, when you're structured as a lender and you're syndicating transactions, 
the lender is only making their money off of the origination of those transactions. And so what you don't want to do is have a huge staff that you've got to keep uh, going every single month if the economy goes through a cycle. So one of the things that we we realized is that if when we when we restructure and, and, and form Polaris, we want to have as few employees as possible and and only have the most experts that we hire in-house. And we're going to third party everything we possibly can that is non-experts. For example, processing draws, looking and reviewing, matching, matching proof of payment with an invoice is not a good use of, of having staff on our team. That, that's an easy thing to uh, put out to a third party, just things like that. And so we were able to run Polaris with three people all the way up to about $45 million. And it's just, we had become so efficient at processes of how we think about things and how we do things that it didn't take and you know it, today we run floors with 12 people and we're we're positioned to manage up to a billion dollars of, of equity and people uh, the, it, you know for the people who haven't worked with us before people often wonder how are we able to manage the communications and responses to our investors as well as we do and that's just because we built the processes on how to do that and we do it efficiently and we we we've already thought that through so generally for example a lot of investors have the same question and when you have a situation that is an often question we'll keep that that email response canned that will just needs to be reformatted specifically for this particular investor it just is a time saver but it's custom built for email but this has been being done since 2010 and you know this is something that people are just today kind of starting to use through third-party server softwares and things like that. But we've been doing that for a long time. Got it. Okay. Brilliant. Simple and brilliant. So tell me, tell the audience, what does Polaris do? Sure. So Polaris is an asset manager for private credit. We've originated thousands of transactions um, and billions of dollars in our careers. And Polaris was uh, focused on doing value-add lending. And value-add lending in our vernacular means that a portion of the loan amount is, has been pre-approved to go back into enhancing the value of the property. It could be uh, a budget for renovations. It could be ground-up construction. It could be tenant improvements, whatever that might be. It's a very uh, specialized lending skill set because it, you are have a significantly more underwriting upfront and then you also have to continue to process that loan post-closing as the borrower submits draws for reimbursements of improvements that they've made. And so that's our specialty. And we formed Polaris in 2010. And then in, in 2014, our local congressman, Dana Rohrbacher, passed the most consequential legislation to ever pass in the United States to date that nobody has probably ever heard of. And that was the Rohrbacher-Blumenauer Amendment at the time is what the name was. And that amendment defunded the Department of Justice from any prosecution of a cannabis-related business. That, that law passing, what we realized is that this is lar the largest newly created asset class to lend on. We had the skill set to do it, but nobody was doing it yet. And the way that we think about it is that we were going to be lending to the owners of the properties and simply allowing for the tenant licensed by the state to be a cannabis-related business. And so by that, by that, uh, the Rohrbacher Blumenauer Amendment passing, it meant that we could lend to a borrower, and and we could not be we and the, and the borrower could not be doesn't need to be fearful that the tenant would be prosecuted by the federal government. 
And so once that happened, we took a deep dive on this sector. We realized that this is a, a, a great spot for us to, to look at. And by 2016, we started originating in the sector. Um, and then we became the first dedicated lender in the country. We realized that this asset class was, in our opinion, vastly superior to the fix and flip and the other types of transactions we were doing because we were getting bank quality sponsors at lower loan, lower LTVs and they weren't having to sell the properties to get out of the, the transaction. And the borrower's uh, source of revenue was coming from people that were spending on average about $42 at a dispensary, which is relatively discretionary. And it's going to be less impact than a real estate or economic downturn. So we were very comfortable going into the, the space on those on, on that thesis. And ultimately, ultimately, we launched the fund for $100 million in 2018, which was the first dedicated fund to the sector. Um, in 2020, we upsized that fund to a quarter of a billion and converted to a private mortgage rate for the tax benefit for our investors, which reduced the federal tax rate by 20%. And it made it so that the, uh, the investors only had to pay uh, their state taxes in the state that they're domiciled. And there's also self-directed, didn't have any UBTI um, uh, issues uh, either. And so we upsized it uh, in 2020 to, to the quarter of a billion. And then the next year, we got investment grade rated. Um, we were the, had the highest rating of a private company in the cannabis sector ever, ever issued. Um, and we brought in the first institutional investors in our bond offering. And then later the next year, um, we uh, upsized the offering to a billion dollars. And we were uh, the last thing that we did just this last year was we closed the first securitization to ever be completed in the sector. So these are some some major, major, major achievements that are very normal for uh, a private mortgage REIT in other sectors. But because of the nature of cannabis, uh, they were extremely challenging and we were able to solve all of those. Darn, man. Congratulations and good for you. Thanks. Um, yeah, you're, you're welcome. You are lending to the owners of the real estate. Are there any or is there a percentage of those owners that are also the operator? Yeah. So the most motivated party to spend this type of money on, on these projects is an owner user. So I would say that 98% of our loan book is owner uh, users, even though they're separately held entities. Got it. Okay. Um, and so, in are they? I don't know that much about cannabis from a business perspective. Unfortunately, there's no bigger expert on the usage of cannabis on earth than me. But it's been a while. So, are are these growing? Is that what they do? Are they growing facilities? Yeah. So we're willing to do any uh, cannabis asset type other than agricultural. So we'll do um, commercial buildings, which is primarily um, cultivation, is the largest portion of our book. Um, and we also do greenhouses as well. Um, but we have dispensaries. We have um, you know all, all kinds of different uh, types of licenses uh, or uses for our portfolio. But I'd say ninety five percent of them are cultivation, and then they have additional. Uh, they might have extraction or or uh, other types of licenses in that same facility. So they're. Well, there are multiple licenses in each one of them. What's the average size of these things? About 12, well, uh, for, for a loan size, about 12 million. For the size of the facility, it just depends on what market you're in. And, and it, you know, each state is a different universe. Um, I would say that the average is 
I'm just guessing here. I, I don't have that off the top of my head, but I would say probably around 18,000 maybe. Got it. Thousand square feet. I was just curious. It wasn't even a prepared question. Like, I have no idea how, how big these <laughs> things are. And what's what's the uh, in in what percent are ground up? Um, I would say very few are ground up. You just don't need to do it ground up, but we have done ground up as well. So most of them, any property that's existing, even if it's in an area that's designated for use for cannabis, doesn't qualify for use yet because it has to be specifically purpose built for cannabis to be approved for cannabis use. I see. So are they, here's the dumb question. So it's, they're acquiring an existing structure. So what, what is that structure prior to them utilizing it for? Yeah. So most of them are just industrial properties, warehouse type properties. And so what they're going to need to consider doing is how, how much power demand, how much water do we need? Um, what, what type of lighting are we going to put in there? Are we going to airtight seal these rooms so we can put in an artificial environment like CO2 and pump that in? If that's the case, we got to make these, these rooms hermetically sealed. There's a lot of high-end technology and costs associated. So these facilities, the cost to improve them could be $250 to $500. They could even be more than the purchase price on a square foot basis. Um, but they also generate 10 to 15 times more revenue per square foot than a non-cannabis property. Wow. Um, are they, and it, what is the length of the loan? Yeah, on average, just first question. Sure. So we actually have two loan products. We have our, our traditional value-add bridge lending product that's 18 months. And then what we realize normally as a lender, you don't care who pays you off and you're, you're just happy to recycle that capital. But what we realize in this sector is being the, uh, one of the only lenders in, this, in, the, in the country that can do it, we were doing all the heavy lift, getting those borrowers, building those relationships, getting that facility built. And then we were allowing our competitors to take that borrower from us. And so the reason that we got investment grade rated was to go and do a bond offering was so that we could add within our existing fund, a secondary loan product that is a fully stabilized loan product that we could reduce the cost of the loan by two or 300 basis points and give them a five-year term with, with a uh, amortization schedule of usually about 20%. And so now we can keep that, those loans on our book. So we keep everything on our book, our portfolio. We don't sell off uh, any of our loans like our, our, a lot of our competitors do. And so we want, we believe that we're the best party to manage that portfolio and to, uh, you know, we, if we were, if we were, we originated that transaction for the build out, we'd like to keep them on our book as they continue to uh, uh, excel. What is a typical interest rate on a five-year term? Sure. So, you know, I don't know how, when people will listen to this podcast relative to the economics out there, but Prior to the rates going wide and going crazy, we are, our bridge lending product was at five points and about 15% interest only at 60% loan to cost basis is the general format of that. And then our uh, fully stabilized loan product was typically one to two points. And it was typically around low double digits for the coupon for that loan. Um, it, and that would be interest only maybe for the first year or two and then, and then reduction of, of principal uh, to get it down to 20% reduction uh, uh, of principal by the end of the term. Now, today, we have actually shifted both our bridge lending product, which is traditionally we're always fixed rate, 
to floating rate. Um, and so today, those rates would start at no less than 15% um, with a floor at 15, but they're, they're going up as high as 17 today. On our fully stabilized loan, those loans are starting uh, with a fixed with a floor of no less than probably 12 to 13, but they're running right now at around 15% just because of where inflation is at. And they're all they're tied to SOFR. Got it. How, how many other uh, companies do what you do? Sure. So there's three, including us, that can do the size and scale that we do. Um, they have a slightly different lending strategy than us. We're as close as you can be to the traditional lending model uh, of just lending off of cost basis. Our two uh, peers are both happen to be publicly traded. They utilize not only the cost basis of the real estate, state, which is what we do, but they also include the enterprise value of the cannabis operator. They also include the value of the license to operate that uh, operator. And they also include the accounts receivable and any other uh, assets as well. Um, those licenses could be worth as little as 50000 or as much as $50 million to operate these facilities, depending on what state and, and if the state is unlimited license state like California or limited license state such as, as Florida. But we have the same collateral package, but we believe that the best way to value these assets is just only being much more conservative and just utilizing the cost basis of the real estate, even though we have the company, we have the license, we have all that other collateral. We don't give it any value because we don't know what that value is going to be if and when. If we have to foreclose on it, there's probably very little value there. And so I certainly wouldn't want to have to included that in my lending basis. Have you had to foreclose on any uh, any borrowers? Yes, yes, we've had to foreclose. Um, and so when we um, lend, not only do we do we secure the property at our first lien, but we also get a share pledge of the company that has the operator for the tenant. And we've got the licenses as well so that we can easily replace a cannabis tenant for the highest and best use into that asset. How long has it, well, in, 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 well, how many foreclosures has it been? And is that exactly what you've done? Have you basically found another operator? Yeah. So, um, in the, the very first one we ever did, the, uh, anomaly, the, the city had decided the building department that they were going to tell the art borrower who their tenant should be, which they have no standing in. And, uh, they, they slow played issuing. The uh, final permit for the facility until the borrower was willing to agree to changing who they had a contract uh, for the for the campus operator who we had approved and underwritten the transaction for to who the city decided they wanted to be in there for whatever reason um, uh, you could potentially consider that as extortion they were writing emails it was crazy it was a small city in California um, ultimately in that particular scenario the borrower paid us for two years at twelve percent the city wouldn't issue the permit. We foreclosed and uh, we took the property back. We already knew that this city was problematic and they immediately contacted us and told us if we, you know, if we ever want this facility to be built, that we were going to have to pick their, the tenant that they had identified. Um, and we decided in that particular circumstance, it was better to not be working with the city and we sold it to an auto repair shop. We took a very small haircut of, I think, $25,000 or something on, on the principal but we had collected 12% interest for two years. So it was a net positive trade and we didn't have to deal with the city. So we've had some anomalies like that. 
Another transaction we foreclosed on, it was a larger loan balance, but we foreclosed on that property. We got all the licenses as well transferred to us. And the current basis of that property is higher than that loan amount. And we are harvesting the first, we have an operator in that facility and they are harvesting the first uh, crop at that facility. And uh, that revenue will flow through uh, and we'll push that down to our investors. As soon as that facility is stabilized and, and maximized, we'll sell that real estate for a profit as well. And why did that borrower foreclose? That particular borrower, um, he was a legacy operator. The, that term means that you are coming from the illegal cannabis operating world and coming to the legal world. And he was he had the most trophied property in all of Humboldt, uh, the largest assemblage of acreage in the entire uh, county. And the reason that we were doing the loan was for uh, him to go from an outdoor cultivator to an indoor uh, uh, cultivator. And that significantly reduces risk. You don't, you're, you don't just have one harvest a year. Now you have a perpetual harvest. You have higher yields, higher concentrations, and a much higher quality product. And so he ripped up his crops and his fields to build the facility, but he also decided that he didn't want to uh, honor the terms of the loan agreement. And so in that particular circumstance, we uh, did not advance the money and uh, we don't know what his, uh, his strategy was going to be. Uh, and ultimately, we had to foreclose on that property and then we're building it out ourselves uh, now. Got it. Okay, well... Sounds sounds painful. Are the loans for? Oh, I know the answer. The loans are for you know converting the 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 use into industrial because you've already articulated that. Does any of the of the loan proceeds uh, go towards operational use on uh, of the borrower to run their business or you know that kind of thing? Pay pay yeah. salary, you know, payroll, etc. Yeah, so we're we're lending to improve those properties and make sure that that borrower and their tenant have a runway that completes that that facility, and we make sure that the operator has enough uh, reserve cash flow to operate the business on their own without our proceeds. Now, if a transaction was just recently uh, purchased. For let's say a million dollars, and um, you know they are coming to us for a refinance of that uh, of that purchase price. For example, we would potentially lend to uh, up to sixty percent of that purchase price, uh, and and allow that capital to be re- because they had already spent it into into the facility. So in some circumstances, that that's fungible. They could potentially have been using that that capital, but we're basically reimbursing them for money that was already put out. I got it. And okay, I, I understand. And, and is there a reason that you really just want to, you don't really want a loan against operations? So probably- We don't two- do any, we don't do any loans against operations. Um, we're, we're, the basis of our loan is purely off of the value of the real estate. Okay. And why is that? That, it, look, it's, you're, you're, it's too speculative of what the value of that business is. It's too speculative of where the future of the market is going to be. Um, that's another reason we keep a short loan term is it gives us another opportunity when that loan comes up to maturity to reassess that loan. If a borrower makes us payments, you've automatically given them an, a, another 30-day extension. Well, in some scenarios, if we see that the adjacent city has a referendum to pass cannabis uh, uh, laws, 
that are, and it's going to be a better tax basis than our current city, we might want the borrower to come in with an additional principal reduction in order for us to give an extension. And if they don't have that money, if they won't, aren't willing to do it, we might reject their payment because we have so much equity, that 40% equity cushion, we might reject that payment and force them into a foreclosure while we still have the maximum equity protection as opposed to waiting until that, that next study comes online and other facilities get up and, uh, up and running and it impacts the, uh, the, the, the lease rate or the value of our property uh, in a negative way, potentially. Okay. How many loans do you have out at any given point in time and where are they? Sure. So we've done 74 transactions for more than 540 million. We've had 39 payoffs for more than 110 million. We have 424 million assets under management, of which is 32 loans across the country. Primarily right now, we're in about eight states, um, but we're willing to be in any of the 40 states that are currently legal. Got it. Okay. So you're in eight states. Are they are they dispersed randomly in the country? Yeah. Or? So, you know, with most bank lenders, when you're not specialized and you don't you're not looking for the specific area uh, to be in, you're looking for geographic uh, diversification. With cannabis, it's not the same. You're looking for the best tax basis, the lowest costs, and the best uh, economic environment and or weather. If it's greenhouse, so you're you're looking for certain areas that are going to be superior uh, relative to just randomly trying to force the issue to go get to ge geographic diversification when it's taking you to a inferior uh, facility or production or tax basis or whatever that might be. So you have to take specialty lending in a different category than a traditional bank lender that uh, just has to have certain uh, spreads across. So if you're a lender to, to the best wineries in the world, you wouldn't say I, I can only take 10% in Napa, even though that's where the vast majority of the world's best operators are and best, best wineries would be, and the most uh, experienced people are, are all in that core area, you wouldn't say, hey, look, I can only do 10% there, but I'm, I'm a wine lender. I've got to, I've got to force the, the diversification through 90% across the, the country regardless. It's not how you think about things. Okay. Why are banks not in the space? So this is a great question. Um, there are 804 banks listed on FinCET's website right now. That's more than 15% of all banks in the country, which is currently, I think, just under 4,500 banks. Those banks are doing deposit relationships for tier one, which is plant touching and non-plant touching, which is what we are. We have in the more than 2000 transactions we've ever seen, we have never seen a borrower, the PropCo or the tenant, the OpCo, not have banking in place. It is a vast, vast misunderstanding of why there's an issue with banking in the system. And what the issue is, is that credit cards at the dispensary for that initial $42 purchase are not able to be used to purchase cannabis because they run on the federal system. So because of that, you have to pay cash at the dispensary for that initial sale. Then that cash has to be boarded by a, by a bank. Any bank in the country, all 4,500 of them can accept cannabis deposits Instead of accepting, utilizing a suspicious activity report, often referred to as a SARS, they have to use an MSARS. There's a specific one that was created under the Obama administration for cannabis deposits. And that requires compliance for that capital to be brought in. 
So a bank is not willing to risk their banking license unless they've got a compliance department built out for each state that they're accepting cannabis deposits. So the banks that have entered into the space have built those cannabis compliance departments. The rest of the banks don't want to have to deal with it. So they don't accept the deposits because it's not worth the additional headaches to have that compliance department for, for relatively small amounts of deposits. And by the way, of those 804 banks, all, up to 400 of them are lending or have lent in the past. We've been paid off by banks. These are both federally chartered, state chartered, community banks and credit unions across the country. We're in an FDIC insured bank. Our bank uh, has done lending. Uh, our former former bank is FDIC insured, federally chartered bank as well. It, it's done lending. So it's a massive misnomer that it doesn't exist. So, so some banks are doing this kind of lending. Absolutely. But they are, they, they are not able to, they're not specialty use lenders. They're not able to uh, collateralize the cannabis license like we can. And so they cannot underwrite it at the highest and best use like we can. And so they have to underwrite it as non-cannabis because they cannot replace that tenant with the highest and best use. So they're limited on what, how, how and what they can do. How long will this be the case, do you think? Well, that's always going to be the case. The banks, bank, traditional banks are not specialty use lenders. So it's a very specific type of lender that does specialty use lending. And that's the category that we're in. So we are, we'll never compete directly against banks for the same structure of, of loan. Um, so regardless of what happens, whether rescheduling from schedule one to schedule three, which looks like it'll happen this year, or safe banking or safer banking passes, here in the, in the, somewhere in the future. What are other examples or larger categories of specialty use lending? Uh, yeah, that would be most similar to cold storage, data centers, or lab space. Okay, wow. Would, would you ever get into any of those? Our fund is dedicated purely to this specialty use category. Um, and people have come to us to not get additional exposure to other asset classes. They are simply coming to us to diversify their own portfolio to be less impacted by real estate or economic downturn. Okay. Rob, I get the feeling you've been asked these questions before. Probably. <laughs> okay. Uh, what, what are the biggest uh, challenges you're facing now? Um, so look, we've always had more um, capital constraint than we, ha than we had a, the ability to fund the transactions. So there's always more loans available than we could possibly fund. Um, so that's always been a challenge. And, um, you know, we're, we're constantly innovating and finding ways to solve for that. But uh, that's one of, the, one of the bigger challenges. Another one is, is to solve secure, um, custody issues of where our securities can be held uh, for our institutional investors. You know, and even though we were approved for Schwab, um, it, they, they made a business decision that they won't let us uh, board anybody right now just, they, just because of a potential reputational risk. So we can't utilize some of the no, normal custody, custodial agents out there. Same with self-directed IRAs. We've only got probably 10 or 12 that are cannabis friendly. So these are some of the things that we've had to solve for. Um, and back in the day, we didn't have any treasury management. We couldn't find um, somebody that we could invest our cash in while we're waiting to deploy it, which normally any lender could do that. You know, finally we solved that. We weren't able to get a line of credit for many years. So these are all major challenges that we had to solve. Um, and you know, we successfully are solving each one of them. 
Um, and some of them will be solved uh, with, with if we get the rescheduling of Schedule 1 to Schedule 3. How many, this just dawned on me, how many uh, cultivation facilities are there in the country? Sure, great question. So um, that was an unknown question for many years. And it's something that actually kept us up the most was to not know the universe of, of how many uh, square foot had been built and what the per capita usage is. So we formed a separate data company that the exclusive client today is just the Polaris Fund. And we have mapped every single cannabis license in the country, every uh, what type of licenses they are, where they're located, who owns that facility. And we, have, we were the first ones to determine that once all 50 states are legal, that the cannabis real estate market for building out all these assets is about 50 billion. There's been about 4 billion issued, which we did a little bit over half a billion that ourselves. And so that, that universe is about 27,000 unique owners across the country. And I'm happy to say that that is how we monitor. We've, we've taken that model over two and a half years now, that, that data, and we've blended in now not only uh, the costs for energy, labor costs, building costs, what the universe of, of, of cannabis buyers are for that state, but we're also predictive in showing, okay, what are efficiencies going to be gained uh, on kind of like a Moore's law as things become more and more refined through technology? We factored in latitude for light for um, greenhouse type transactions. We've also factored in things like um, uh, traveling for places like Las Vegas and things like that. So that data nobody had access to and we're the only ones in the country that thought about that way. There's lots of data out there, but it only refer is, is looking at the cannabis operators as their business not to integrating that information with price per pound for the different asset class for the outdoor greenhouse and indoor, which are all different levels uh, of, and costs uh, and integrating all that in so that you have a really good understanding of the market. Hmm. Out of 20,000 owners, approximately how many facilities are there? Or did you already answer that? Yeah, so there's 27,000 unique owners and I think there's 30 something thousand I, I, off the top of my head. I think maybe it was 32,000 or so uh, licenses. Some of those licenses might be in the same facility. We, we, could, we would have that information, but I don't have it off the All top right, of my that's head. Okay. So in other words, there, there aren't people, there aren't, a, most, most of the um, owners have one. No, no, that is not true. A lot of owners have lots of licenses uh, okay. and lots of facilities. Yeah, some of them have hundreds. Okay, all right. Easiest question. How does somebody get a hold of you, Polaris? They want to invest, want to learn more. Yeah. Well, they can go to our, our website, PolarisEquityGroup.com. Polaris is P-E-L-O-R-U-S. Or they can just email us at IR for investor relations at Polaris, P-E-L-O-R-U-S, and then C-G.com. So Polaris Capital Group is the name that we we have we're, we utilize today as the manager of the fund. Okay, Rob, thank you uh, so thank you. so so much. Uh, sorry, I, I pushed the limit here, and no uh, look forward to reconnecting soon. Thanks, Roger. I appreciate it. Great conversation. You got it. All right, see you later. Bye bye. 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 